Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Empathy begets empathy and vulnerability begets vulnerability, right? If you want someone to open up, you don't badger them. Hey, man, I know you're struggling. Tell me that's not going to work for anybody. You open up to them, you know, talk to them, show them that you are worthy of, of being trusted, of being of, of that. You will listen to them, that you will hear them. You are listening to the Preacher Boys podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now... Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Jay Schiffman. He is a public speaker, coach, and he's a host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. And I really want to just have a pretty transparent conversation about mental health. And uh, I know we've brought up addiction on the show, people who've experienced trauma. That's unfortunately uh, one of the ways people tend to cope. And so I wanted to bring him on to discuss this topic and just chat through how we can kind of open up this dialogue around mental health. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for joining me on the show. And uh, yeah, just give some background about how you got into this line of work. Well, I really appreciate you having me here. Any chance that I get to talk about issues of substance misuse, mental health, you know, I don't I don't say no. You know, as a podcast host, I remember when I was first starting out and, you know, I would beg people to talk about some of these issues. And so I want to make sure that, that no one ever has to beg me if they say, hey, we want you to talk about this. I, I'm there, you know, so I really appreciate you having me. Unfortunately, my story is a very personal one. Um, I, I didn't choose this life. It chose me. Um, I am almost 11 years in recovery myself, coming up on 11 years this spring. And I, uh, my, my story is, 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 I hate to use the word unique because it's unfortunately not unique. I, I wish it was. What is unique is that it's, it's the one you're hearing, right? Nobody talks about my story. We, we kind of hear two camps when it comes to struggles with substance misuse. You know, the, the, the guy who struggles with, I don't know, pick your, your big name, you know, scary drug, right? I mean, and, and he's a punk rocker and all this, he's a bad guy and all that kind of nonsense, right? And then the other end, 
we hear the one that's on, on the front page of all of our papers right now, which is the opioid epidemic. Now, mine tends to fall more towards that, but it wasn't with opioids. I, I was diagnosed with ADHD uh, when I was a preteen. And as somebody who struggles with some issues of mental health, including ADHD, uh, going on high levels of chemicals when you're also going through puberty and your body is sort of trying to understand these mental health struggles, it's a perfect storm. And unfortunately for me and my therapist who, who helped create this perfect storm, he didn't see his own role in it. And he didn't see this perfect storm have been created. And, and he decided that these side effects of this, what, what I was going through were signs of a larger issue. And he decided to diagnose me with bipolar disorder. Now that label never really fit. I, I was convinced of it. We trusted this guy. He was a well-known, still is a uh, therapist in, in my hometown. But I started having other struggles because of these medications. And by my early 20s, I was completely and totally mentally and physically addicted to these medications. And all of that culminated in uh, the summer of 2009 when I attempted suicide twice. I overdosed. Uh, clearly, I survived. Uh, spent three weeks in a lockdown unit, uh, three weeks in a long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution about 50 years ago, and then almost four months going through what's called step-down detox. And uh, the reason I did that is because I was on so many medications, about six at this point, that if I tried to go cold turkey, they would have literally killed me. The combined withdrawal of my body would have shut down. So you take a little bit less every single day until you're off of all of them. And that took me almost four months. So uh, that was kind of when my life restarted. And then I spent the next, I say five years, really allowing my brain, my body, sort of my maturity to catch up. Um, and, and around 2015 is when I first started telling my story. And I've been doing this work full time for the last two years. Right. What was it that kind of prompted you in that direction to make this kind of a, a profession, like to make this your, your career trajectory? So that night in 2015, when I first started telling my story, um, I said no the first three times. Look, the stigma around substance misuse and addiction is very real. Right. Um, I had it in my head that I was a failure that I had, I had screwed up that if I admitted that I, you know, was a, a, a dirty addict and all this stupid shit that we hear, people would run from me, you know? And at the time I was in nonprofit uh, fundraising and I was in politics. And so those are really relationship driven businesses. And I was scared. I was terrified to alienate any of those relationships. <laughs> But after my, my buddy ran a, 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 a storytelling event and he asked me to come speak and I said no three times. And then that third time I happened to be going home for dinner with my family and I sat down to dinner or I'm about to sit down to dinner and I'm talking to my dad. And I said, look, you know, this thing is happening. I'm, I, I'm terrified, whatever. He's like, but why wouldn't you do this? And I was like, cause I'm terrified. You know, I don't want to admit that I'm a, and he's like, look, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And that sort of just solidified in me. And the next day I said, yes. And I told my story and far from this, this, you know, future I had imagined where I was shunned and all, it was the opposite. All of a sudden I was in demand. You know, people were asking me to come speak. Um, I did a, a Ted event, all these kind of things. And it just, the ball kept rolling until 
in 2019, when I was, like I said, about nine years in recovery, I was chatting with a, a job coach I had at the time who was helping me in, in my career in politics. And I said, you know, I got to say, I really like this at the time I did at least politics is a very dirty business, but uh, I really feel like I could be doing more in the substance misuse, the recovery space, mental health. And she helped me realize that the reason I wasn't is because, again, I was scared. I was scared to leave behind a career I was very good at um, to try something new. And, and she helped me really understand I wasn't trying something new. I was taking my little side gig that I've been doing now for four years and turning it into my full time thing. And, and, you know, there's still some bravery there to launch yourself off in this. But her coaching helped me recognize that this wasn't just giant leap that I'd build it up to be. And so in January of 2019, I launched my own business, Choose Your Struggle, which had been in, you know, I'd been doing this now, like I said, for about four years, I just was now going to do it full time. And uh, here I am two years later, uh, weathered the storm of 2020 by turning my public speaking gig, which was my number one, that's where I was doing the most of before COVID. Um, when that crashed because of, of COVID, um, I, I just had launched this podcast thinking it would be a good thing to help drum up business. And luckily for me, the podcast took off and, and I was able to make it a success uh, by working really hard and by leveraging a lot of these relationships I had built. Um, and, and also, quite frankly, not saying no by coming on shows uh, with other awesome hosts and, you know, people sadly we live in a society where it's like all right what is this going to do for me today i have been on some shows where the only people that listen were me and the host and maybe the host's <laughs> mom you know but the good news about that is that you don't know what this could turn into i've had people where i was like i don't know i mean this might be a and sometimes they are not great conversations. And then six months later, I'm like, you know, I really need an expert on this for my show. Or, hey, my buddy is doing the speaking thing. He needs someone to talk to about X. You know who would be great for that? And so this world is built on relationships. And if you say no more than you say yes, you don't know what you're turning yourself off to down the road, right? So right. you can't just be focusing on tomorrow. And I got to say, by the way, I don't ignore my privilege here. I come from means. I am really lucky. My wife has a very stable and, and, and well-paying job so that I can focus on doing good. You know, obviously I'm not getting rich off talking about mental health and substance misuse, but it doesn't really matter to me because the importance here is the message. Um, I had someone yesterday, we had a good conversation, really good conversation. And she messaged me afterwards, very apologetic and said, I'm so sorry. When we connected, I didn't realize how big you are. And I was like, don't like, don't, don't, I don't want to hear that. Like, this is about the message. And I enjoyed the conversation with you just as much as I did recently, you know, talking to that former Congress member I did on the show or whatever the case is. The fact is, if you care about this, it shows and it doesn't matter who you are. If you don't and you're just doing this, you know, because you think it'll get your name out or because mental health, the hashtag gets a lot of clicks on Instagram. Uh, people are going to see that through that pretty quickly. Um, and I know I get pitches once or twice a day of people trying to be on my show and I've gotten pretty good about going, okay, why is this person reaching out? And sadly, most of the time it's not for the right reasons. 
Right. Right. Well, I mean, you're, ta you're talking a lot about conversations and I think that there is, you know, you mentioned the, the stigma. There's a lot of stigma around having these conversations. And um, obviously there are people who have, you know, it's, it's become trendy in certain pockets of the internet to talk about, you know, hashtag mental health or to, you know, throw around the buzzwords, but to really have a, a real conversation, a vulnerable conversation about it is rare, especially you know, with my show dealing with religious environments, a lot of times, you know, there's religious stigma. Is it, is it really a mental health problem? You know, should you really be, you know, should you really be seeing a therapist? Should you, you know, all of these different questions come, come about. What are some ways that we can make the conversation comfortable for people who want to come forward and talk about mental health struggles? So uh, obviously it's all, it's a whole nother, trail of like how someone who's dealing with it can come forward, but how do we cultivate an environment that's comfortable to talk about it? hundred percent. Um, and I think you make a really important point about the religious environment. Now I was raised Jewish. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not that religious anymore, you know, very, very sort of socially, um, Jewish, but I'm, I don't go to synagogue that often, but the, the religious environment makes it difficult at times. I was actually talking to someone this morning who's going to come on my, my show in a couple of weeks to talk about this piece because, she grew up in a household where depression didn't happen. The devil yeah. got gotcha, you, you know, and that stuff just blows my mind. Right. And, and not to fault people who are so comfortable in the religion that they believe this stuff, but I, I perfect example. I have a client right now who's been struggling with, with a, you know, misuse of heroin. And his mom reached out to me because she said, Jay, I'm praying and it's not working. And I want to be like, well, if prayer was the only thing we needed, then we wouldn't have a recovery community because, you know, uh, preachers could do all of this work, right? There needs to be a tandem here. And far be it from me to say that religion does not play a role. But unfortunately, for the longest time, religion has taught us that they are the end all be all of a lot of these things. And it just can't be that way. Um, especially because a lot of the really harmful ideas around substance misuse have come from religion. You know, for the longest time, it was actually believed that sitting against God was the, was what was behind addiction, um, which is just flat out false. I, like the, we know that we know that there are a lot of different factors. You know, sinning is not one of them. So, um, again, not to say religion does not play a very important role, but if you're seeing it only through the lens, there's going to be problems. Now, for, for, for people who in your life, you are afraid of struggling. There's there's actually a very simple uh, checklist or, or a method um, that that places like I have my uh, certification in mental health first aid from John Hopkins. Um, uh, Red Cross also teaches a very similar class. Both are incredible. Uh, no prerequisites or anything required. They just same thing as getting your your first aid certification from the Red Cross. You know, for physical health, it's it's what you can do for mental health. And uh, they also teach you how to, to respond in these moments. And, you know, the, the, the sort of checklist, if, if you think somebody is struggling, it, it's sort of, it's, it's easier said than done, of course, but the answer is you ask them, you, you say, you know, I'm worried about you. Is everything okay? And you give that person. Now, obviously, if they don't trust you as a person, they're going to say they're fine. And there's a there's a saying I have on my show that empathy begets empathy and vulnerability begets vulnerability, right? If you want someone to open up, you don't badger them. Hey, man, I know you're struggling. Tell me that's not going to work for anybody. 
you open up to them, you know, talk to them, show them that you are worthy of, of being trusted, of being of, of that you will listen to them, that you will hear them. So it, it's it can be that simple. I know, again, that's easier said than done. But but just remember that you're reaching out to this person because you care and come from a place of empathy. Right. And I, I want to just take that one one section deeper. Um, I would mentioned to you beforehand, but specifically, I think, uh, I mean, as as a guy saying this, I think what the people that struggle maybe the most to have these conversations are men. And again, I think especially in religious environments where, you know, you've got the maybe a more patriarchal kind of system where you've got a guy who's supposed to be the leader and, and be strong for everyone. Um have you noticed uh, when you're speaking or maybe when you're, when you're doing your one-on-one kind of coaching, do you notice that distinction? Do you notice that guys tend to struggle with that? And can you talk about maybe some of the reasons why that hundred percent. So I got a fun game. I want to play with you real quick. Okay. So I read this article. This was right before COVID. Uh, it was in psychology today. They did a study and they found that 95% of male relationships, their conversations revolved around three topics. Can you guess what those three were? Number uh, one, sports, sports. You got it. <laughs> um, nope. Work. Number two is pretty obvious. Nope. If you think about it, there you go. Women? Number two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, number three, I would, I would assume work. Uh, I'm not sure what's nope. oh, so they lumped it in under a big category. It's media. So music, movies, TV, that kind of thing. If you throw in okay, food, okay. which was fourth, you're at 99% of all male conversations. And what this article is about is basically you have these guys who are their best friends in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and one example was the guy had been homeless for two years. His best friends didn't know another one. He had been divorced for almost half a decade. His best friends didn't wow. know because yeah. it never came up. You know, yeah. and and we just don't feel that we can do that. And so when I read this article, uh, it almost literally knocked me out of my chair. I was so taken aback. And then I went, oh, my God, I do that, too. You know, I had just yeah. gotten when I read this, I was about a year after I got married. And so I thought back on all my groomsmen, my, my best men, all that kind of stuff. And I realized I was doing the exact same thing. And I work in this industry. Right. So I reached out to all of my close guy friends. Again, it was very easy because I had just gotten married. So I knew who those guys were. And I said, look, I just read this. I love those topics. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big Reds and, and Boston Celtics fan. I want to talk, you know, baseball and basketball. I also don't want to hold things back like this from you guys. At the time, my wife and I were going through a rough patch. So I told one of my friends about that. He was like, wow, dude, I never told anyone this. Like my wife, or my girlfriend and I have been really struggling too. We had a really great conversation. And so now my friends know if we're talking sports, if we're talking movies, you know, music, that means Jay's going to respond with, all right, how's everyone doing? Because we've talked about those surface level conversations. Now it's time to talk about the real stuff. No, that's really good. And uh, yeah, what does that say about me? I struggle to figure out what the third thing guys talk about. So I guess we're missing that. I'll tell you what, you were the closest of anyone. Most people only get one and they'll either, women is usually the, no, women. For whatever reason, guys don't even think sports because I think they're thinking of like real conversations. And most of the time we talk sports in passing, but unfortunately that's the scary part. Most of these conversations are in passing. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so kind of on your own um, thing, I, want, I wanted to just circle back to something that you've you've been talking about quite a bit. And you kind of made this distinction before we started talking. So um, you talked about the difference between being in recovery and being sober. And, and um, 
I'm, I'm just curious what you mean from that distinction, what your kind of mindset is when you, when you make that distinction. Yeah. So this is something that, um, I, it, a lot of people go, Oh, wow. That's very new. Not really. It's actually been around for a long time. Uh, it's just that the definition of, of, you know, sobriety being the only way into recovery really sucked up a lot of the air in the room. Now, there's a reason that uh, that you and I don't have time to dive all the way into that um, AA was the name of the game back when it was founded in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Uh, but it's not the only way into recovery. And in fact, um, it really isn't for a lot of people. It's sort of, I like to make the analogy, AA to recovery is like Harley Davidson to motorcycles. Right. You know, if you see a motorcycle in a movie, it's probably a Harley. Why? Because the name everybody knows. But are Harleys really that much better than a Suzuki or Kawasaki or whatever? I don't know. I'm not a motorcycle guy. I just know that, you know, probably not that much better. In fact, the other ones may be better. We just know the name Harley. Same thing with AA. We just know about AA. In fact, everybody and their mother can probably quote a step, but that doesn't mean it's it's the best method. So um, about, I would say about 10 years ago, a very strong group from a different camp started pushing for more of that space. And that group is called the harm reduction camp. And what that basically means is for some people, straight sobriety is always going to be the method, right? I'm actually going on an interview later today to talk to a guy who he was in recovery from prescription pills, was like, okay, I can try having a drink, ended up struggling with alcohol. That does happen. And it's it's very sad. For me personally, my struggle was prescription pills and, and cocaine and some other stuff. I don't go anywhere near that stuff because I don't know. It may trigger me. It may not. I don't want to find out. I have a great life right now. I very, um, I, I have a good cushion that if I did, you know, relapse, I'd be okay. I don't care. It's not worth it to me to try cocaine again. It's not worth it to me to try prescription pills. That being said, I've never had a bad relationship with alcohol. My wife and I are big whiskey drinkers. I think whiskey is a godsend. Um, we both like good wine. I can have a glass of wine. I can have a glass of whiskey. Now with prescription pills, I couldn't. I I, I didn't want a pill. I need. I wanted ten. You know. So that's the distinction is that there are people like me. In fact, a vast majority are like me where it may be one substance. Let me give you another perfect example. You know, someone I was on a, a call earlier today with a guy whose his struggle was was uh, porn. Now, there's a big debate in the addiction world about how much of our quote unquote definition of, of addiction to porn is actually driven by religion. That being said, there are a lot of people who have an unhealthy relationship with porn why should that person stop drinking? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. for them to enter sobriety and then start, you know, if, if they've never had a problem with alcohol. And so it's a very person centered approach. Uh, again, the, the, the very definition basically means yes, sobriety may be for some, for other people, it just may not be using that substance or for other people. It may be, right. look, you're using in a really unsafe way. Let's get you back to using in a safe way. And so it's a very person centered approach that you're seeing a lot of places are now embracing. Um, and the signs of these are things that you see on the news. So syringe exchange, you know, people being able to bring in their syringes and get clean ones back. 
that's a harm reduction technique that's been around for a while, uh, safe injection sites, um, test strips to make sure that your drug is, is what you think it is and you're not going to overdose on something like rat poison. These are things that came out of the harm reduction community that are now being embraced by the, the you know, everyone because it just makes sense. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's what you just touched on is kind of a controversial thing that's that's come up a lot, like the safe injection sites. And I, I think to the general public, um, you know, and, and I think even myself, like at first glance, I was like, why would we, you know, facilitate a way for someone to do something that's harmful? But when you start taking two seconds to think about it, you're thinking if they're if they're going to be doing this anyway, and it's, if they're going to be, you know, fulfilling this need somewhere, like why not make it where the chance of them doing harm to themselves is lower in this context. You can deal with the problem long-term, but the short-term you have to have some kind of situation that, that makes sense. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's really relevant. And I I do think that is, I I think abstinence is kind of the default mode of resistance to anything. And again, especially in religious communities, I think it's better not to, not to play with fire at all than, you know, than risk it. But I, I, but it makes sense. The way you're saying it is like, there's, there's people who may struggle specifically with one thing who don't struggle with, you know, A, B, or C. Um, but that's, that's kind of the hot debate right now. I, I believe in the, in the kind of, <laughs> I, I, well, I guess in the world is, is the, the CBD and the THC and, you know, the, the marijuana conversation. Um, and there's a lot of people who I'm familiar with who are, you know, former cocaine addicts, you know, heroin addicts, like, meth, you know, and who are, um, you know, now smoke marijuana or, or, or use CBD and they have a healthy relationship, you know, with it. Um, I get, what's your kind of take on the whole, I mean, marijuana is talk about trendy right now. Marijuana has become kind of the, the trendiest thing right now, but, but what's your kind of take on that kind of growth? Do you think it's, do you think there's a potential harmful side of that becoming so popular? Do you think it's generally been fairly positive? Not to throw you in the deep end of a of a hot topic. I would but. I would say that's actually a pretty shallow and in my line of work. I um uh, so I will say full disclosure. Not only do I use CBD and I'm a, I swear by it, um, but my podcast one of my sponsors is a CBD company. So okay. definitely uh, comfortable talking about this. I would say that you have uh you've hit on something very important, which is the fear of harm. And, right. and I would say that my, my, my response to that is, is there a, is there a potential for harm? Of course there is. There's with everything, you know, um, I will say, put this in perspective. Uh, do you know what the top two most harmful drugs in the world are? Um, I'm well, specific drugs. I'm not sure what would categorize to, I mean, Nerve wracking. I don't want to guess wrong. Uh, two most harmful drugs. Period. Like, yes. what's gonna? What 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 kills uh, the most, and what and what hurts the most amount of people? If it's what kills the most, I'm gonna say alcohol is one of the one alcohol of the top. Alcohol number two. Okay, and then I would say number one would be like something food related. But I'm, nicotine. I'm trying, nicotine. Okay. So so again, and my point that I'm making with this sort of facetious argument is that I completely agree with you. Is there harm potential? However cannabis and cbd is just cannabis without one of the ingredients um is significantly farther down on that list behind a lot of things uh 
yet we've never allowed the harm, quote unquote, to really stop us from doing other things. You know, nicotine, we're finally, you know, cracking down on those, although it's not they're not making it so that nicotine's illegal. They're making some of those really predatory advertising and selling practices illegal, which is a very different you know, topic. Alcohol, you can get everywhere. And I'd say that the, the sort of joke that we tell a lot in this industry is when's the last time, you know, a kid pulls you aside at his locker in seventh grade and says, hey, man, I've got a Pabst Blue Ribbon. You want one? You know, you just you just don't see that because it's now a lot harder for, for kids to get because we legalize this. And because, you know, it makes sense for a corner store guy to not sell to a kid. Yeah. He'll get his $10 that day and he's going to lose the millions of dollars or whatever he makes from selling alcohol the rest of his life. So it, the, the legalization is a very interesting topic. Um, and especially when you address the fact that marijuana has never been harmful um, the, the, the amount of, first off, you literally cannot overdose. It's not possible. Right. Um, the way you overdose quote unquote on cannabis would be by smoking so much that your lungs give out. It's not about the cannabis itself. It's about the intake method. So, um, it, it, is it addictive for, you know, there is a debate on that psychologically 100% because a lot of things are gambling, sex, well, food. psychologically, anything can become a hundred percent physically. There is nothing in cannabis uh, that is addictive. Again, I, I don't want to minimize the psychological aspect. It is, right. There is, you know, addictive tendencies, but again, that's not about the cannabis itself. That's about your environment. That's about who you are as a person that it's about your genes. Um, so it's not really the cannabis's fault in that, in that respect. And, and that's where we get down to in the legalization argument for a lot of things is if we're just going on harm, a lot of these things should be legal if alcohol and nicotine are legal. So it really starts helping raise a couple of these questions. And um, if people are interested, there are some really fascinating studies of uh, the, the history, especially in this country, but how the U.S. has influenced the rest of the world on uh, making things illegal, uh, especially around drug, you know, the war on drugs specifically. Uh, my favorite is called Chasing the Scream by an incredible reporter named Johan Hari. Uh, he really went back into I mean, he went into records. He talked with some of these people and really exposed uh, the sad lies, the racism, the sexism that is the basis of the war on drugs. And, you know, I don't fault people for believing a lot of what they believe. You know, I'm 34. I was taught dare in school, right? I was taught just <laughs> right. say no. These things were instilled into us. But we're, we're exposing how much all of this isn't true. And in fact, how harmful dare was really harmful. There were a lot of people who struggled with substance misuse specifically because of dare. There's been a lot of scientists, science studies about this. It's fascinating. Uh, hmm. So I get that this may, a lot of this stuff may shock you. It may upset you. It may anger you. All of that is very normal. That's very rational. What matters is what you do next. Now that you have this information. Right, right. Um, so I, I want to ask what just one more question just about, you know, people who, you know, the actual side of helping make it a comfortable environment for people. And um, look, I, I've had a lot of people on the show who, you know, or people who privately messaged me who've experienced trauma, they, they, you know, they talk about coming forward to people with, you know, different drug addictions, things like that. Um, when you're, when you have someone come to you and, and I want to get into it in a second, you know, actually going to somebody, but when someone comes to you as a pastor, teacher, parent, 
um, you know, it can be a question of what issue are we supposed to deal with first? So someone comes to you, severe trauma, and many times they're unloading. I have trauma from, you know, a molestation that happened, from a rape that happened, from seeing some kind of a violent act, and I have an addiction and I'm struggling with, you know, extreme use of alcohol, you know, with, you know, taking heavier drugs and things like that. Um, So many people, their first response would be, you know, take them to AA, take them to some kind of lock-in facility, you know, fill in the blank with all these different things. Would you say, you know, when you're dealing with that, obviously it's person by person, but is it focusing on the, the mental side of that first dealing with the trauma? Is it dealing with the addiction first? So you can be clear minded to deal with the trauma. Like what, what, what should be someone's first step when someone comes to them and unloads all of this information? Oh man, I'll tell you my, my, my first step is just to let them know that my heart is breaking for them when people tell me, and, and, and to put this in context, um, you know, my, my background is mostly public speaking before I got into coaching, got my certification, all that kind of stuff. And then when this, when 2020 was, was very clearly going to be what 2020 ended up being, I uh, lost a lot of my public speaking opportunities. And I was like, all right, what am I going to do this year? How am I going to be of service? And besides the podcast, I really doubled down on the coaching, but not in the traditional sense. I only had, oh man, like six or seven clients throughout the year. My goal was just being there for people. Mm-hmm. And so in March, when, when shit was hitting the fan, I threw up on social media, on my Facebook page, on, on, on my website, on my podcast. If you need someone, I am here, just reach out. Mm-hmm. And what I heard, first off, I was swamped. The next three months, like that was my full-time job, was just responding to people, right? right. But the stories I heard were heartbreaking. You know, People who were scared they were going to relapse because they couldn't go to their groups, really exposing some of the of the limitations of the AA model, which was if you can't be there in person, how, you know, if your sobriety is so tenuous that, that not being able to go in person is enough to knock you off. Maybe we need to work on some deeper issues, right. Of people who were scared because they could, they didn't, they wanted to keep going to therapy. They didn't trust going to see their therapist in person. These are all real issues. And, And I think that we responded well as a community you know, a lot of groups moved online. A lot of coaches like myself were very busy in 2020. Um, a lot of therapists, you know, thankfully switched to, to the, the online models. Um, so it is a tough time right now for that kind of thing because the answers are not as clear as they were before. Now, the positive side of that is some of those answers were not good answers. You know, this the, the most harmful, I think, uh, sort of trope in this community is the whole um, intervention, shame them into rec- That hasn't yeah. worked for anyone ever outside of a movie. I, I will tell you that right now. If that worked for you, I want you to call me. I have never heard us. I've talked to hundreds of people in recovery. Not one has that worked for. So if you're the one, please call me. I want to hear your story. That doesn't work. We cannot shame somebody in recovery as Johan Hari in this book, uh, chasing the scream is famously now known for saying the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. So by Mm. reducing people, by cutting them off, you make it worse. You don't make it better. Um, So, so that I think is what people think. We got to get them into this center, but if the person doesn't want to get, you know, better the the way you would definitely define that they're not going to. So you asked a really great question and, and it does matter by person. That being said, people use drugs for different reasons. Nobody 
really okay maybe some people most people do not use heroin to party or something it's not a party drug you know heroin is a warm hug heroin fills a hole in you that something else isn't filling and you know i one of my clients right now is struggling with with heroin misuse and we're just kind of scratching the surface. He doesn't really want to see a therapist. I want him to, but he's not comfortable doing that. And so my goal with him is to help understand why the hair, what the, what hole that heroin is filling so that when he does feel comfortable seeing a therapist, they can work on that. So the answer I think to, to your question would be getting them to talk to someone who understands, and that's not going to be you, you know, help in this case, the, the, the guy, my, my client's parents have just been shaming him for years mm. and then they're shocked that it's not working. You know what I mean? So, so they reached out to me and said, what we're doing isn't working. Will you chat with them? And of course. Um, and, and so having them talk to someone who isn't going to also try to shame, you know, if they're a person who is 60 years in AA and that's the only thing they know probably not the right approach right now, you know, especially because, you know, we're still in COVID situation where being in person isn't really a thing we can do. Maybe this is an opportunity to try some new things. So finding someone like myself, and there are a lot of us out there who are recovery coaches, recovery guides, really depends on where you are, what, what we're called, but we're everywhere. Um, and if you're hearing this and you don't know where to turn, give me a call. Find me at my website, find me on social media. It doesn't matter. I've had people reach out every way you can imagine. I think the only place someone hasn't reached out to me is through TikTok. Uh, so please reach out. I'll be here and we can just have a conversation. Right. Right. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I, and that was kind of my next question is just for somebody who is on the flip side. So, you know, I wanted to spend a lot of time because I know there's a lot of pastors and, and parents and, you know, so on that listen to the show, but for those who are, um, you know, who are struggling with either mental, like severe mental health with, with, um, you know, drug addiction, you know, and, you know, they're struggling to know like who to go to, like, what's a safe, there's, there's gotta be that fear of like safety. Like if I tell someone this is a huge expo the same way you felt even talking yeah. about it after, you know, starting to move past it, it was like, you have to have this fear and like, you know, are they going to judge me? Are they going to sit me down and scream at me? What's going to be the reaction? So for someone who is saying like, I have a, you know, I have a problem. I have something that's happening. That's, you know, I can't stop on my own. I need to talk with somebody. Uh, what do you recommend they do and how do they kind of do it in a way that's safe for them and, you know, establish good boundaries, like what they want to happen, what they don't want to happen. What a wonderful question. I'm really glad you asked that. I was talking to someone recently who put it in, I think in a really beautiful way. She said, you know, if you leave the hospital after the surgery, cancer, whatever the case is, there's food, there's fruit baskets, people are waiting at home. She said, when I left the, the mental health hospital, I came home alone. Uh, and that I think paints what we're up against pretty perfectly. Um, reaching out can be scary. And in fact, there is always somebody there. You know, I say that as someone who in my rock bottom moment felt that I was completely alone and that just wasn't the case, but that's the way I felt. And, and part of that is it, part of the reason uh, that I'm doing this new thing called rock bottom storytellers, where I'm bringing people together who have been in those moments to tell their rock bottom story. And now all of them are, whether they're in recovery or, you know, if it was a mental health struggle, they're, they're, you know, doing better is to help normalize number one struggle, but number two, talking about it and make people realize that, you know, 
if you do something that makes sense in that moment, like take your own life, like whatever horrible thing we can imagine, uh, know that on the back end, what you're missing out on, you know, uh, I talk about my stuff openly because I want people to know that now 11 years later, it's night and day from where I was, you know, these people who are telling their stories, um, some of them are absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and, and, you know, if you're able to hear all four without crying, I'm going to give you a medal, but, but part of that is knowing that it does get better. I know that's a trope, but it, but it does. Um, and, and so you kind of have to, uh, and this is so hard to do. I know it's like akin to um, if you broke your ankle, still standing up and walking, but take a step back in your moments and have a little bit of mindfulness to go. Okay. This is only how I'm feeling right now. And one tip I give to everyone on that topic, so I'm a guy who struggles with depression. And so I go through periods where I feel life isn't worth living. Life has always been terrible. It's always going to be terrible. Depression, even in your worst moments, can not overcome rationality, right? And so injecting that rationality back into your worst moments is a pretty good response. Now, it's not perfect. It's not going to snap you out of it, but it does help a lot. And so what I do is on my phone every night, I rate my day one to five. And it's that simple because number one, it allows me to have a little mindfulness about my day. And normally how I'm feeling at night is not the same way I felt in the morning. And so it really helps me think about my day. But most importantly, it means that when I'm in the worst moments of my depression and, and I'm, you know, I rate it from one to five and the worst moments are like ones, you know, I can look at that and go, oh, it's only been three days you know, I was a five a week ago. Life is fine. I'm just in a bad moment. That is enough of a snap to get me going back up again. Now, again, that's not for everybody. Uh, and if it doesn't work for you, you know, there are other methods, but that is a really well tried and true idea of if you can have a response, if you have something that in your worst moments disrupts those thoughts that keep you there, uh, you'll start to get, you'll start to go back up again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel that for sure. And yeah, in the same way, like that's, that's where I struggle for sure is, is like, you know, I, I get into that funk of like, uh, everything's always been awful mm-hmm. or like, man, every day is horrible like this. And, and, you know, for me, it'll literally be like, sometimes just I'll be going through my, my phone or like see something I posted like three days ago where it's like one of like, you know, one of the best memories that I've made <laughs> recently or a yeah. text I sent out to someone two days before saying life's great. Everything's been awesome. <laughs> and I'm being honest in that text, but two days later, when you're, when you're in the thick of it, it can feel like, you know, is especially, I mean, even, even doing this show and, and talking with other people about their trauma, like there's, there's times you get into funks where you're like, you absorb that and you're not taking time to, to do things that are healthy for yourself. So you're sitting there going like, man, I just feel all of this, like I'm feeling like, you know, there's every, all these problems are too big. There's no way to see change, you know, all of those things that go through our head, but all it can take is just, yeah. Reflecting on, okay. Two days ago, I didn't feel like this. I was hopeful, optimistic, you know, (laughs) things were looking up. And if I look in the the big picture, they are like in the big picture, you know, I, I, I joke with my wife all the time. Like, you know, the first year we got married, I made like $11,000. Like, I, it was, that was how much I made the first year married. And, you know, now I sit here, I'm like, we live in a really cool place. We've got like, you know, things overall are way better than they were. So why would I feel worse, you know, than, than how I did then, you know, it's, well, it's just, so I'll tell you, mindset. 
you know, there's it is mindset, but there's actually an evolutionary response to that. And mm-hmm. it's because, you know, a, whatever, 100,000 years ago, remembering where the choices berries were wasn't as important as mm. remembering over there's where the saber tooth tigers live. If I go over there, I'm going to die. Right. So your brain remembers a hundred negatives for every positive or something. And, and, and that's why there are a lot of tips and tricks to surround yourself with positive. So in those moments when your brain is doing what it was literally bred to do, you know, keep you alive. And by reminding you of all the scary and terrible things and not the good stuff, you can go, okay, but all of this also. And, and and this is a term I learned from a coach years ago. She, she called it like a truth box um, because it was literally, she had you print out every single positive and keep it in one place. So that if you're really struggling, you literally, it's like a treasure chest of all the positive stuff. Now I do something similar where I have taped above my computer, uh, a lot of positive stuff, you know, uh, clients who have said great things about me, positive reviews from the show, stuff like that. So that in those moments when my brain is doing what it's supposed to do, I can stop it by looking up and going, all right, but all of this as well. Right. Right. No, that's awesome. That's a really, that's a really great tip. And, and yeah, it's something that I've done variations of for sure, for sure. Going through this, um, going through this show and, and cause it, it did this honestly, like this show helped me kind of readjust that because I, I, I talked about a little bit, I think on the show, maybe I haven't, but, um, it was like back in, back in June, um, I, w- I got off the phone. I was talking with someone and, and probably like 60% of the conversations I have connected to the show never ends up being an episode. It ends up being me redirecting someone to lawyer, therapist, someone like I'm sending them to get help before I'm like the show something, but like you need to deal sure. with this problem first. And um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of contacts and stuff that I get. And um, yeah, there was, there was a week in, I think it was July, June or July. And uh, you know, I had, I had a huge there was like seven victims coming out of like, or six victims coming out of one church of, of abuse at one time that were all, I was in group chats with people and talking. There was uh, there was like a national organization that had all these things coming out. There was another like lawsuit that I was, I was like talking with people who were victims who it was like, it was like six months before they would ever be able to release an episode, but I was just talking through it. And I was like in the mode of it. I'm like helping. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. You know, this is fine. I'm, I'm helping. I didn't, I, I thought it was fine. And I was driving home and, you know, all of a sudden everything at once just hit me on top of the normal life stuff that hits you. Mm -hmm. And I I just pulled over and just started crying. And I was like, what, what in the world is this? And so I, I basically took a month from the show off and, you know, talked to a, talked to one of the trauma therapists I've become friends with through the show. And, you know, it just really that helped me understand the importance of like really structuring your life in a way to process things correctly. And um, I, I think especially you probably understand this as a coach, like um, and, and you're doing a lot more in the nitty gritty, like granular stuff than, than I am is it's really easy to start absorbing negative, you know, negative energy from 100%. people around you, yeah. from, from things you're dealing with. And if you're not taking time uh, I, I was, like I said, I was talking with this uh, trauma therapist and, you know, just them encouraging, you know, Hey, step away and take a walk for an hour, you know, take 30 minutes to go out. And for me, that's been a light. That's literally been like a lifesaver. It's like to go out and just, okay, I'm going to go out, you know, pretty much every day for a walk with my daughter. Like that, that's a reset. You know what I mean? I and I, and you have to do that stuff. And I think, I think that's why you're, you're, this conversation is so important. You know, I know, I know when we first connected, you're like, 
how is this adjacent with that <laughs> with what you're well, doing? Well, I was thrown off by your by your name. I was uh, like, uh, am I yeah. the right person? <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it is. I mean, I think for people who are experiencing people who survived incredible trauma, people and then also people who are have family members who are are working one-on-one with people who have experienced super trauma, having this conversation about mental health struggles, about, you know, addiction, it's so important. And and I really appreciate you, you coming on and sharing uh, and, and being so open about, it. I think it's super important. Well, I really appreciate you having me and, and, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it, the more we talk about it, number one, it normalizes it. Right. And, and number two, we go beyond normal. You know, I think that we talk a lot about let's normalize these things. And that's literally the first step. We're not anywhere close. So yes, let's do that. But then beyond that, let's radically accept it, you know, like anything else where um, it, it, there's nothing it, normalizing. It is just making it so that it's still a thing we can talk about, but then promoting it is a second thing. So, yeah. um, you know, I definitely think that every conversation is a step in that direction. And, and I really, I always appreciate people who are opening up opportunities for it. Yeah, for sure. So for someone who wants to connect with you specifically, Jay, what's the, what's the best place or the best hub for them to, to find out about what you do? Well, I'm the most active on LinkedIn um, because th- there's a really robust mental health and substance misuse community on there. Uh, and my name is just Jay Schiffman, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N. And then that, that's the, my LinkedIn name. But my, but if you want to get in touch with me, the easiest way is my website. There's a contact me page on my website, which is just jayshiffman.com. And um, reach out and, and, you know, know that even though I'm not a therapist, I'm definitely not a lawyer. I still abide by those rules where what happens, what is said between us stays between us. I may reference you in a show like this, but I will never say a name and never any details because that's all very personal. And, um, you know, I know that I'm very open with my story, with what I've been through, but there's a reason that Alcoholics Anonymous has called Alcoholics Anonymous because back in the Mm. day, you know, this stigma was so strong that not only was it a shame thing, but, you know, there were people literally working overtime to make this stuff illegal. Mm. So, you know, there's a reason for that. Now, I personally think that we're beyond that and it's time for more people to tell their stories, but you have to get there, you know, just the same way it took me five years. So I don't fault anyone for who isn't ready yet. And my only hope for you is that one day you will be. That's awesome. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I hope you guys will check out and, and connect with Jay. Uh, I think your message is really important and hopefully we can, uh, there's another step toward ending the stigma. So definitely. Well, I really appreciate you having me keep up the awesome work and thank you for all you're doing for the people who rely on you. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.